This Sunday is a pivot Sunday in the church. Christmas gave way to Epiphany, the manifestation of the light of God. We've been traveling by that light for some time, but as we just talked about, come Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, we enter the season of Lent. Just so in Scripture and all the Gospels, Jesus reaches a point, uh, sort of a midpoint of the journey, away from just the teaching and preaching and healing as he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And this text in Matthew is that pivot moment. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. If you're planning a trip to a faraway country, our friend Ted Wardlaw has written, you go to language school to learn to speak the language in order to negotiate your way around and be able to read menus and find your way to the bathroom and things like that. You may even spend a session trying on the clothing if it's an exotic land or sampling the food of that country. In language school, you learn to speak the language, to wear the costumes, and to taste the food of the land, which is precisely what we do on Sunday mornings. We go to church more or less entitled, more or less successful here in the middle of time, more or less people of privilege to try our hand at a strange language. It's the language of liberation, but we're still getting the hang of it. We don't speak it near as well as we should but we come here to practice that language. And as we do, the time we live in now gets overthrown by the time we will live in someday. That is never more true than facing transfiguration. Listen to him. Get up. Do not be afraid. If there were ever three words of instruction from a text a command, a promise for a world like ours right now, they're right here in Matthew's gospel. Even so, this is a strange text. I have a confession. I've worked hard through many, many churches to never preach on this Sunday so I don't have to deal with this strange text. This has been Youth Sunday. It's been a choir program Sunday. It's been a children's program Sunday. I don't know how I got short this year, but here it is, and here we go. I mean, did you hear the strangeness of this text? Jesus takes his three favorite followers up a mountain. Two figures who are on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament suddenly appear out of nowhere. 
The clear sky becomes full of clouds, and a loud voice from heaven speaks to the assembled. And Jesus, Jesus begins to glow, kind of like Homer Simpson, who stayed too long at the nuclear plant or something. This strange transfiguration text is about the future, but not just any future. It's about God's future. This text is also laced with fear, but not just any fear, our fear. Fear and future. Fear and future coexist together in our lives as they do in this mysterious account. Mystery, said writer Flannery O'Connor, is a great embarrassment to the modern mind. The thing about embarrassment and mystery mixed together in our lives is that new things can come when we are both embarrassed and facing mystery. Something breaks open of our closed world to transform it. We could even say to transfigure it. This transfiguration account is the turning point of the gospel. Jesus has been going about feeding and healing and teaching and casting out demons and proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. But from the disciples' view, there was little evidence that the kingdom of God was making much progress. What they saw was the religious authorities of the day getting annoyed, the powers that be getting angry, and Jesus just walking into the middle of it. Now, Jesus is, with this, turning his face toward Jerusalem and his ultimate confrontation. And it's time for the disciples to go from watching and observing to being engaged and involved. Jesus knew his destination. He knew what would be required of these disciples. And this is the way he chose to equip them for this hard, hard work of being the body of Christ, of making manifest the kingdom of God in a world of need and injustice. This was the moment. This mysterious experience was what Jesus used to prepare them for all of it, including his own death. And the instructions in Matthew's text coming out of the transfiguration, three words, listen to him. Get up. Don't be afraid. As Lutheran Seminary President David Lowe said this week, confusing events, divisive rhetoric, increase in tension, an unclear picture of the future. Some dread what is happening. Some are excited by what is happening. All sense the importance of this moment. This text arrives just in time for us, drawing us into these three words of instruction and command and and promise. Listen to Jesus. This story is so strange that usually we think it's our job to figure out what this means, you know, to try to explain it. What if instead we simply received it in its mystery, its holy mystery? Garrett Kaiser, a minister in Vermont, tells of conducting a Saturday night Easter vigil service in his little church. Only two people besides Kaiser show up, one of those embarrassing moments. Kaiser lights the Easter candle and says the prayer. The candle sputters in the half-darkness, he writes, like a voice too embarrassed or too overwhelmed to proclaim the good news. 
Christ is risen, but it catches fire. And there we are, three people and a flickering light in an old church on a Saturday evening in the spring with cars with winter-rusted mufflers rushing by outside. The moment is filled with the ambiguities of all such quiet observances of just a few people in the midst of an oblivious population in a secular age. But then... One of the three, a woman who's just survived two rounds of chemo for breast cancer, steps forward and lights her candle from the Easter candle. And she says, louder than she needs to for the assembled, Alleluia! The other man in the group, clutching his one-year sobriety chip as if it is a life raft, lights his candle and proclaims even louder to the three of them, Christ is risen indeed. With all the noise of our world, all the clanging voices of our culture right now, what if we ceased for a time trying to figure everything out, to get everything just right, to clarify our stands against everyone else's stands, and tried to sorting all these voices, and instead simply received God's promise of Easter, Take an inventory of all the words you're going to have to sort today. Take an inventory of all the hot-button issues you have to navigate in your life today instead of spending your time on Christ is risen. I think we can almost certainly agree that the best way to understand God is to look at Jesus and listen to him to pay attention to what Jesus says and what Jesus does, to whom he reaches out, and to those he gives attention and help. That cuts through a lot of the words. A colleague of mine recounts, I remember my first evening as a hospital chaplain when I was in seminary, I was a nervous wreck. I hadn't been in hospitals much before, I was 23, not used to being around people in a health crisis. My starting assignment of all places was the critical care unit. I introduced myself to the family seated around bed number one. There was a father, mother, some children. Grandma was in the bed. She was not doing well. I asked what was the matter with Grandma. They told me. I asked what the prognosis was for Grandma. They said they didn't know. I asked if they minded me being there. They said no, it was fine. After those three questions, I couldn't think of anything else to say. My anxiety started getting higher and higher. My, my heart rate was racing, and I started to think, what do I do now? What, what do I say now? It must have been obvious, because the father said, are you a chaplain in training, or what? <laughs> and to that question, my friend said, I responded with a 15-minute soliloquy about my life, my interests, my background, my hopes. All this nervous chatter to fill the air directed at a family I had met exactly five minutes before. Later with my supervisor, I identified easily enough what I should not do again, but I still didn't know what I should have said or what I should have done. Look for Jesus in the room, she said. If he's there, point out Jesus. If he's not there, bring Jesus in. At the transfiguration, God's voice said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Second command. 
get up. Except it's not just get up. The Greek verb Matthew uses here is the same one the angels declare to the women at the empty tomb, as in he is not here, he has been raised. So it's really be raised up, or even more, be resurrected. We are not called in any time just to manage the change we're experiencing. We are not called just to come to terms with our life with God. We are called to get up, to be raised up in every season of life, and to show forth God's love and God's hope. I realize that that may feel like just one more thing we can't manage. But in Scripture, whenever God commands, God also provides equipping and power to fulfill the command. God is in the business of raising people up, sometimes in the most unlikely ways, sometimes through ordinary people like us. One of my favorite writers, I quote him often from this pulpit, is the Presbyterian writer Fred Beekner. He wrote uh, extensively about his daughter's battle with anorexia years ago. Like any parent, he wanted to fix the situation. He wanted to give the gift of health and wholeness and happiness to his daughter, but alas, all the love of he and his wife couldn't fix it. During that dark time, he received a phone call from a friend Lou Patrick, who lived 800 miles away. When Beekner picked up the phone he th- and heard Lou's voice, he thought, oh, he's calling from North Carolina, wondering how I'm doing. No, he was calling from an inn just 20 minutes away. And the reason he didn't tell Fred he was coming, because like many of us, he'd go, oh, no, that's too much. Don't bother. I'll be okay. Lou just up and went, 800 miles, not even knowing if Fred would be there. I have never forgotten how he came all that distance just for that, in that dark time, Fred Beekner has written. Although, as far as I can remember, we never as much mentioned the name of Christ. Christ was as much in the air we breathed as the dappled light of the woods we walked through. I believe for that little time, we touched the hem of Christ's garment. For a little time, Fred was able to get up from his crouch of fear. More than that, he was raised up by the power of God, working through someone just ordinary, like you or me. Third promise, do not be afraid. This is Main Street of the Bible. This is the enduring theme of the gospel, words we always need to hear so that we can try to act in faith and trust. Reasons of fear I do not need to tell any of us abound, and they are different for many of us. The threat of terrorism, the prospect of job loss, the potential to betray our national identity and values, the fading possibility of a better future for our children, deportation, lack of security, the consequences of being on the front line as a first responder, the consequence of what, you can, what can happen in this culture because of your skin color, dread, illness, unexpected death, the list, you know the list. We all know the list. To all these different fears, the gospel reply is always the same because God is the God of past, 
present, and future, we need not fear. Because God is the God of past, present, and future, we need not fear. Would you say that aloud with me right now? Because God is the God of past, present, and future, we need not fear. This is not the same as saying we'll have no problems or that we'll avoid harm and hardship. Rather, it's recognizing that when we trust God for our individual and our community good and believe that God is with us always, we don't need to be afraid. We all grow afraid sometimes. The gift of this command is to recognize that God did not create us for death. God created us for resurrection. German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer struggled against Hitler, was imprisoned by the Nazis, so his life was constantly shifting from hope to despair and back again. In prison at the end of 1942, he wrote to friends and family, The joy of God goes through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That's why it's invincible and irrefutable. The joy of God does not deny the anguish when it is there, but finds God in the midst of it. In fact, precisely there. It does not deny grave sin, but finds forgiveness precisely in that way. It looks death straight in the eye, but finds life precisely inside it. A year later, Bonhoeffer found himself awaiting trial, still hoping he might be released from prison, but it was not to be, though he was shifted from camp to camp on his way to eventual execution in April of 1945. Bonhoeffer never escaped the Nazis' grasp. As he gradually came to terms with his fate, Bonhoeffer wrote to his friends, sharing with them how he managed to keep his faith behind prison bars. He found comfort, he told them, in a few simple things. The hymns of his faith that he learned as a child, that he sang over and over and over again each morning. And especially the daily reading of scriptures, and especially those passages that told the story of God's enduring faithfulness. Bonhoeffer remembered all God had done through the stories of faith and acknowledged all God was doing even in that moment behind prison walls. Through it all, he lived by the gospel light. God did not create us for death. God created us for resurrection. Listen. Be raised up. Do not be afraid. These words are said about and by our Lord as he refuses, if you'll notice in the text, he refuses to linger on the mountaintop but comes back down again into the realities of the world and our life as he makes his way to Jerusalem. There he'll be tried and condemned and crucified for the world had no place for the encouragement and hope he offered. But the story doesn't end with only the courage of one man defying the world. It continues with the promise that God raised this one from the dead so that all of us may have hope and that there is more to life than we can see. That 
God will be with us, will be with you every single step of the way, and that love and life are stronger than hate and death. Listen to Jesus. Be raised up. Do not be afraid. Christ is risen indeed.